Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. All right, today we are going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew 22 as we continue the difficult sayings of Jesus. This is our what, fourth week. Yes, fourth week in Matthew. Next week or next time we meet, we're going to actually not meet next week. Uh, but the next week we will start, the following time we meet, sorry, uh, we will be in Luke. So we'll do a quick overview of Luke and then start coming from some of the difficult sayings that Jesus has uh, written about Jesus in the book of Luke, or the Gospel of Luke. But today uh, will be about uh, Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 22, or at least parts and pieces of those. Uh, this section of scripture that we see here in chapter 10 is... Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult for some people because it's about division or leaving people out, or people not about to be in. At least on the, on the surface, it looks like that's what it is about. Because if you look at something like Luke 2.14, uh, the angels come and say that the Prince of Peace has come, uh, that Jesus had come to, uh, to bring peace to the world, to bring heaven to earth. And uh, that's all true, and these verses do not take away from that. Uh, and that's what we'll explain as we go through this today. And remember, was it last week when we met? It was uh, about chapter 10 here in Matthew. Again, chapter 10 is, what is, verses, uh, is verse 13, uh, where the disciples were sent out, and they were supposed to bring peace to the homes in which they went to. Uh, but one thing we have to keep in mind, the, the, the idea of bringing peace, or the coming of peace, and we'll get a lot more deeper into this as we go into this and into the, the two the two verses or two sections of scripture we'll be talking about today is coming to peace is, is not through the avoidance of conflict uh, as we learn from chapters 21 and 23 also in the book of Matthew but also what we'll talk about later today uh, what we see here and what we will see actually if you if you were to go reference chapters 21 and 23 uh, we'd see the whole experience of bringing peace is opposite of what we call a peaceful life. Uh, the division of relationships is what we, again, of what we'll be seeing today, especially in this first section of scripture, is not inconsistent with what God's message has always been, uh, that those who decide to follow him uh, will experience a violent response from those who are threatened by the message of God. Not that God wants to divide people, but that we will, people will divide people based on how we respond to God's message and God working here. Uh, we have to think that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were very threatened by the message of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, the very people who were to lead God, uh, to lead the people of Israel to God, uh, were some of the most threatened people when God came to earth. And so that's something we can think about. The, the Romans, of course, felt threatened as well because they, of course, had their uh, Roman emperor, their Caesar, who uh, was a god, or at least divine in some way. And they, of course, felt threatened when this, this guy from Galilee shows up and says, Hey, no, I'm, I'm God. I am Jesus the Messiah. And, of course, so they'd feel threatened by that. And we know from that, that from the priestly class and from the Romans, what the response was. It was violence against Jesus and those who followed him. It continues to be to this day. Uh, if we are familiar with the, the prophets, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, I uh, wouldn't we'd not be surprised by this response because many of the prophets were treated violently. Many of them were killed. They, they suffered violence firsthand for bringing the word of God to the people. And that was mainly just to the people of Israel that they brought the word to. I mean, you have Jonah who, as a prophet, brought the word 
to, to a Gentile group, but that's a little bit different. But, but for the most part, the prophets were bringing the word uh, to the people of Israel and faced a lot of violence from that. The verses that we'll first be looking at here of, of chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, uh, can also be referenced back to Micah 7, 6, as well as Matthew 5, 11 through 12. And if you look back at those verses, it helped kind of set the table for what we're talking about today. Uh, so as Jesus has done, he keeps the, as he, Jesus has done in the past, he keeps the Jewish message moving forward from what we know in the Hebrew scripture. He's, he's, very, he's very consistent. Jesus, as he said, did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, he is the Jewish Messiah. He is not the Christian Messiah. And that may sound a little odd, but Jesus was here for the Jews. Uh, he came here originally for the Jews, and he made that very clear uh, early on, especially if you look at what we talked about a little bit more last week and what we'll be talking about uh, today. Uh, Luke also has this story. Uh, It's a little bit harsher in my view. Uh, Luke uses the word hate versus Matthew using set apart. Uh, We'll get a little bit more into that here. Uh, We also see in other examples where Matthew, a little bit different, Matthew uses a, a metaphorical sword here uh, while well, Luke uses the non-metaphorical, ne- non- the non-metaphorical, sorry about that, uh, version of division. You can look at Luke's version in chapter 12 of that gospel if you would like to compare and contrast the two stories here. Uh, they both speak of family going against each other and, and, uh, and going beyond the nuclear family to division among the in-laws as well. There was the understanding, and we're not sure if this is specific to what he was talking about here, but it, the understanding that, you know, Typically, especially when they were younger, uh, young couples would live with their in-laws. And uh, that would just be, you know, so it kind of helps kind of help feed this picture of uh, division within the household, uh, division within the family and the extended family. A few more things before we jump into the scripture here. Uh, Keep this in mind. Jesus advocated for peace, not only within the family, but with all the people, such as what we see in chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, what I'm saying here is that Jesus did not come to bring a sword. Though he says that here, and we'll talk about what that means, he came to bring peace. If you look at Luke 19, 41-44, you'll see how Jesus wept because the people of Jerusalem refused to be people of peace. So, very consistent when it comes to peace. Uh, Paul's letters uh, are also references of Jesus being a person of peace and preaching the gospel of peace. So, if you went to Ephesians 6.15 and 2 Corinthians 5.19, you'd see references to that. Uh, Jesus taught and modeled grace and peace. We see this through interactions between Gentiles and Jews. And we can even uh, see it amongst the disciples themselves. Uh, r- remember uh, about this division between the disciples. You had a, let me give you an example. You had a, uh, a, a Roman employee, a Jewish man, a, a tax collector called uh, named Matthew or, or Levi, who is now among the very people that he was taxing. And they probably did not like him much because of he probably was not the fairest in his taxing uh, policies, as was known for tax collectors in that time period. So you had to think there's probably some tough conversations and a little bit of division, especially at first amongst this group of having these very kind of different people come together uh, as, as followers of Jesus. But it also shows you that People from all ways and walks of life can come and be followers of Jesus. With all that said, and I, and I know that some of you are thinking this, Jesus has some conflict within his own 
household. Uh, for example, when his family looked to seize him because they think that he had gone mad. If you look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Uh, we also see in Mark 7, 5, where it says his brothers did not believe in him. Uh, these small insight into Jesus' life uh, are, are helping us to uncover some hard conversations uh, he had in his own family, which could have led to, of course, some strife and division. You could even think it of his mother saying, Stop it, Jesus, you're embarrassing the family. You know, that sort of uh, division. Let's look at uh, verse 34. Actually, let me read it first uh, here of chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. I encourage you to read all of Jesus's uh, from pretty much from 24 to 39, but just based on timing or foretiming right now. <clears throat> we'll look at verses 34 through 39. <clears throat> do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to send a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. All right, let's look at uh, uh, verse 34, not to bring peace, uh, but a sword should be looked at more of uh, what we should expect to happen. It was not the purpose of Jesus to bring division, but he knew it would be the outcome of his arrival. Uh, most would take the use of the sword metaphorically. There are some who look at it as literally and part of a holy war. Uh, you can if you would like. I'm not going to take that uh, that direction with that, but there are who do, and you know that's that's perfectly fine and up to you. Uh, then again, we, we know from chapter 26, verses 51 through 52, the use of a sword is forbidden. Uh, and instead is used as a metaphor for suffering and conflict. And what I mean is forbidden in that chapter. I, I actually, you should go look, and what you'll notice is that um, it's when Jesus, uh, was it, uh, sorry, Peter pulls out the sword and cuts off the ear of the uh, of the guard, imperial guard, and Jesus tells him to put a sword away, and you know heals heals the ear. Uh, here in verse 34, Jesus is echoing chapter 5, verse 17 from the Sermon on the Mount. He has not come to abolish the law, to fulfill it. He's continuing to fulfill that. The key phrase here, the key two words, I guess, probably better said is the, the I came, uh, which is used three times in verses 34 uh, through 35. It establishes his mission, which is counter to what people were hoping for, a peaceful life and a peaceful Messiah. Uh, or that peace would come as soon as they found the Messiah, but in, instead what they found is uh, a little bit of controversy and a little bit of division. Uh, the claim in which he says, I came, is not a metaphysical claim, uh, in my opinion, but a claim to show his mission here on earth, which points here to chapter 517 to chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, where the Messiah comes to save the people from their sins and to bring God's presence to earth, the combining or the bringing together of heaven and earth, which is a, a common theme through the Gospels. Actually, it's a common theme throughout the entire Bible of God's presence amongst his people. So God, heaven, here on earth. Uh, Jesus is not making an eschatological or metaphysical claim either, I don't believe. It is a then and now, and he, it is a, a then and now, and for us now, a here and now claim to bring God's presence here on earth, as it was Jesus' mission to bring peace to earth. It is ours as well. Uh, we have talked about this before, as in last week, if a Gentile Roman follower, a follower of the imperial cult 
uh, which many of them were, decided to walk away and believe only in the Jewish God, they would lose their livelihood, they would be kicked out uh, of their families. And that is the, some of the division that we're talking about here. If you were uh, a, a Jewish, uh, if you were a, a son of a Jewish uh, Pharisee uh, priest, and he was like, you know what, this Jewish, this uh, Jesus, this Messiah, this guy who's claiming to be Messiah is actually, uh, it's intriguing. I think I will follow him. I think I, will, I am going to walk away uh, from what we're doing here in the temple and follow this Jewish Messiah. That, of course, would lead to a lot of division in that Pharisee's household. Most likely that person would be kicked out of the house, uh, possibly beaten, possibly kicked out of town wouldn't have a whole lot of much of a livelihood left. It'd, it'd be pretty, pretty bad uh, what would happen to them for people who would decide to follow the Jewish Messiah. And again, so that, that division will happen. And that's what Jesus is saying. And unfortunately, and well, just the reality of it, it continues to happen today here in the United States and other parts of the world as well. When people either decide or not to decide to follow Jesus, it leads to division within a family and even within a community. Uh, verse 35 is actually a reference to uh, Micah 7, 6, which, which uh, pointed to verse 21 of here of 1021, where a uh, brother will betray a brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Uh, and here we are. Here we are seeing that happen again in a, a, a quote going back to Micah 7, 6. Uh, Micah, of course, was speaking on the issues of his own day, but has been interpreted by Jewish scholars to point to the issues in the messianic age so possibly he as prophets do they would speak to their own age their own time in which they existed but many times they'd also speak into a future age and so it is believed that that's what Micah was doing there was strife and division within his own time but he's also pointing to future strife whenever the messiah would be here on earth unlike in messiah where there is to be dishonor and arise against here we just have divided or set against uh, notice here is a younger generation against the older generation, but that sh should not be taken as a generational conflict or division as we look back again to chapter 5, verse 21, where the same generation is divided as we see in verse 36 uh, of, here, of this chapter, chapter 10, verse 36, where a man goes against his entire household. Let's focus on the word or phrase uh, set against. Uh, in, in Matthew, it, it, it's, and set against is Matthew and Luke, he uses the word hate, uh, which is in what you'll see in some translations. Uh, others have translated this as turn against. Uh, the word here for set against or is uh, in Greek is um, dikazo. And what that means is to divide or separate, to cause a separation, uh, to bring apart. Uh, this is a, a kind of a, to alienate. Uh, this is a non-metaphorical version of what he's trying to say here. So set apart or set against uh, sword. Uh, the, well, the word for sword is actually used sword, but in a metaphorical way. Uh, but what he's looking at is to set against. In Luke 14, 26, Luke, like I said, uses hate instead of set against, which is the word maseo, translated as intensely dislike, loveless, feel aversion to, or just actually just means hate. Uh, and so Luke just comes at it from a different direction, uh, probably a little bit more uh, stronger direction, I could argue, uh, than Matthew did. And that's just the way they interpreted what Jesus was trying to say. Uh, hate and love uh, are, are two very much misused words in our common vernacular. We can hate broccoli or we can love broccoli. I choose the latter. And the reason I bring that up is hate, hate can escalate from vegetables to someone else's sports teams, to political parties, other countries, and eventually 
people, including friends and family, is quite a scale to love broccoli and your spouse, two very different types of love. And so you have to be careful with how we use hate and how we, of course, we use the word love. As we stick with uh, Luke just for a little bit longer, and I'm referring again to Luke 14, uh, we can see that hate is used about six other times in Luke's gospel, but they are all directed to Jesus or the disciples. Only in chapter 14, verse 26 in Luke, is the hating amongst the disciples, division amongst the disciples, amongst their families. Uh, so it's kind of odd to think about this hate or this division that we'll have uh, within our family because it's innate for us to, to, to love our family. Even in families that make it hard to love other people within your family, it's still something that is within us to want to love them. To think, to, so to think that we are to, to, to hate them, it seems, is more of Jesus explaining the singular focus that was required to the call of the kingdom of God. Jesus' demand for loyalty is very strong. Uh, we cannot have other idols. Uh, why? Because other idols lead us astray. And I'm talking about idling, idolizing friends, family, children, pets, jobs, uh, material things. Uh, but where I hear we're talking about even, you know, you can love your spouse with the deepest sort of love that you think is possible, but your love for God should be more. Uh, that should be the the utmost priority, and the understanding is that that is your utmost pri priority, then everything else will fall into place. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but everything else kind of falls into place. So 100% total dedication to the cause of Christ. <clears throat> uh, back to Matthew 10, 34 through 35. As we look at this, we see... Uh, if we could take a further look back into 1021, where I said, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. It ties in well with what Jesus is relating to within the division of the family. Uh, when one member of a family makes a major decision, in many cases it causes division within the family. Uh, I'm not saying, like, I'm going to go buy a car or a house. And sometimes that could be. Well, you can't afford the car, so I'm going to be upset with you and angry we divide the family. That's not really what I'm talking about here. This is life choices. Uh, I'm going to decide to, uh, I'm a, I grew up Roman Catholic and now I've decided to join a Presbyterian church. Uh, well, some families, that's, that causes division within the family because they're like, well, no, we're, we're Catholics, we're, we're Roman Catholics. It could go the other way. No, we're Protestants, we're Presbyterians, we'll never be, we'll never be Roman Catholics because those are, those, are, those are those people and we are these people and, and we can't hang out with those people. Uh, and the reason that is is that people don't like change. Uh, it scares them. Uh, and really don't like family members to change from the status quo because that's also very scary, which leads to division. Uh, lives change dramatically when we decide to follow God. Uh, many times the entire family or even anyone else in the family is on the same page as we are when it comes uh, to our faith. Uh, many times they're not. We're at different levels depending on where we are within our faith. And even believers can disagree and have division within the family, such as, uh, I, you know, they could believe, like, it's almost like I follow Apollos and I follow Paul. And maybe they have a little bit different theology or how they approach the Bible, uh, which causes division. So even believers amongst believers can cause division as well. So we have to be very careful with that. And that's why you put Jesus as the number one priority. It's really not about if you're egalitarian or complementarian or if you're, uh, you believe uh, in predestination or you don't believe in predestination. Those really, at the end of the day, don't really matter. Those are secondary to the primary focus of who God is and who God is and who Christ is within God. 
<clears throat> we also know that lives change dramatically uh, when we decide to follow God. Many times uh, this, this dramatic change, again, will, will just so divide the family uh, that it could ca- that causes division as we go forward. Uh, people, unfortunately, uh, respond with hostility when it comes to change. Uh, they do not like uh, the change they do not like. Let me put the comma in the right place. And, and Jesus is preparing the disciples for this. Uh, you may very likely be disowned by your family, was what Jesus is saying. Uh, you may very likely be killed, what Jesus is saying. You may very likely uh, lose your status within society, is what Jesus is saying. Uh, we can look at this uh, from a wider context of, say, a universal hostility and social divisions on the basis of Jesus' mission. Uh, what Jesus is saying here is a reinforcement of chapter 10, 17 uh, through 23. It will be hard but the good news is God will be here with us. Uh, remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a lot of sway uh, in, within that society. And if you're a well-respected person, family in the Jewish community, and your son, daughter, wife, husband decides to follow Jesus, you would lose that status within the community. You'd be ostracized and no longer to be allowed in the synagogue. Uh, you would lose your community. That's why this division is happening. Uh, that's why this would be so bad. Um, <clears throat> let's go on. I think we've kind of beat that one up. What do you think? I think so. Anyways, uh, verses 35 through 36. Uh, <clears throat> we already did 35. Uh, let's look at 37 through 39. Uh, Jesus continues to bring in more details, implications, and complications uh, of following him. The key point he is bringing is that Jesus, again, hammering it home. Jesus is our number one priority. Uh, notice here that uh, Jesus does not say wife in verse 37. He mentions most all other important familial relationships. Uh, some have argued that Jesus is referring now to a new family based on the kingdom of heaven, members who are held together by single loyalty <clears throat> and faith in Jesus. Some of our family members are there with us in this new family, and others will make a decision. And key, hear that key word, will make a decision not to be. It's not like Jesus made that decision for them not to be there or someone else made that decision for them not to believe, but they make the decision not to be there. We'll cover more of that here in a second. Uh, to take this further without including the wife or spouse, possibly he is telling us that legal relationships and natal relationships are no longer of singular importance, but instead it is the family of Jesus, which is what is important. Of course, this does not mean we literally uh, walk away from family, spouses, friends, uh, those who do, uh, and others who do not decide to follow Jesus. We pray that they will join us someday uh, in this new family that Jesus has created and allow us all to enter. <clears throat> this could be parallel to a uh, rabbinic principle, this, this division or leaving your family, or this, this idea of uh, becoming part of this new family is, is very close to a rabbinic principle of a teacher versus a student uh, that you'd see from uh, Deuteronomy 33.9. And so people would understand uh, this relationship of Jesus being the rabbi or Jesus being the teacher and the student being the us, the disciples, and how we would, that teacher-pupil relationship as, as we've left our family and we've now followed Jesus uh, to do that. It's harder for us to put our heads around it because I don't think any of us would follow our sixth grade teachers uh, and live with them. But that is, uh, for them, the Jewish people at this time would very much understand this. 
Uh, one of the things we have to keep in mind related to the division is that family and friends may try to dissuade us, uh, may dis- dissuade believers and keep them from having the full attention or being in full attention of Jesus. Uh, so we're, we're, desi- we're here to resist this, uh, and it's hard. The dissuaders, well, we, we are trying to, of course, seek the first, of course, first seek the kingdom of God. Uh, so what about honoring father and mother? That has been a question that's come up about this. And we know from 15, 3 through 9 of this, of this very gospel uh, that we are to honor our father and mother. But that honor needs to be under the guise of God. What God calls us to trumps that what, of what our parents would ask from us. It is God who we are to love more. All right, going on, verses 38 through 39 as we wrap up this section here. Uh, we see that the person who affirms and seek after their own life, own priorities, own self-centered lifestyle, uh, in the end, lose their life. But the, if the other path is chosen and the priorities are on Jesus, there is an eternal reward. Here in verse 38, we know from verse 21 and 28 that martyrdom is to be expected when following Christ. Here in this verse, we see how that will play out. This is the first time we have a reference to the cross. Uh, the most humiliating of deaths, a place for traitors and thieves where all is exposed to the world, the cruelest and the most revolting type of punishment was the punishment of the cross. It led to social disgrace for the individual and the person's family, the ultimate shame in a shame culture, which is what that culture was, very much a shame culture. The Romans had perfected crucifixions and they had made it so bad. Ways that it's hard for us to really comprehend. Even watching The Passion of the Christ would not give us the full view of uh, the movie Passion of the Christ would not give us the full view of what it was like to bear a cross once you were um, convicted of, of a crime. So to hear this would have been startling startling to those listening there in the first century. Uh, they, would have to, they would have to understand that they would very likely die a gruesome death, uh, and and that that it would be a martyr's death, and uh, the the process of shame and humiliation. Which, so how this would work with within how the Roman system worked, uh, the process of shame and hum- humiliation would start as soon as the sentence was made, and that person would have to carry that cross. They'd literally be given the cross to carry from the through the city streets. No clothes, so naked as they walk through, most likely already beaten up pretty well, spit upon, yelled at, uh, part through the, the the busiest part of town, so everyone would see. And they didn't always get hung or put on a cross outside of the city limits. They would do it where people would see and be able to witness the humiliation of this of this person. It was a horrible, horrible way to execute somebody. Verse 39, uh, the good news, there is good news, uh, is that we can look beyond death to a true life. Uh, we, are, we are to take losing life literally here based on what we see in verse 38 and the prediction of being executed in verse 21 of this chapter. Beyond death, because not all will be martyred, which is fortunate, I guess, uh, there, but there will be real suffering and deprivation because of our loyalty to Christ, and we will all face it in different ways uh, throughout our life. <clears throat> so the idea here is you could preserve your earthly existence at the cost of losing your spiritual self. 
the because of me reference that you see here, or it possibly could be said uh, for my sake, uh, depending on your translation, points to the reason for martyrdom. It is not just about dying, but dying as a loyal disciple of the Jewish Messiah. Uh, we see a similar word uh, play in chapter 16 of this book, uh, verses 25 through 26. At the heart here is about having the right priorities uh, to give greater weight to the visible human opposition. It is very real, but yet it's still limited threats, but real, to kill the body, but not the soul, because only God can kill the soul. Humans cannot kill the soul. So, that's going to wrap us up there. We're going to jump right on over to uh, chapter 22. This is about the marriage feast. Uh, uh, verse 14 of chapter 22 is the, the difficult part, where many are called, but few are chosen. <clears throat> but I'm going to go ahead and read from 1 to 14. To help us kind of get a, an overview, an, an idea, context, I guess, better said, of what it is that Jesus is trying to say. So let's look at this, chapter 22, verses uh, 1 through 14. And as we go, make sure I'm on the same page. All right. There we go. Okay. Jesus spoke to them, again in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again he sent out their slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, on one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those <coughs> murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, but both, both evil and good. <coughs> and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him to the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So speaking of things that divide people, get thrown out there to the uh, outer darkness. That's, that's, that's the ultimate division. So here we have the, the parable of the, the wedding feast. This seems to be a very much what we would refer to as a, a Matthean story. Uh, he is a, it, it, there's a variant in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. Uh, some have argued that uh, 11 through 14 here of, uh, of Matthew's version is from the source M, and verses 1 through 10 is an oral version of the same material found in Luke. So Matthew possibly could have borrowed uh, a little bit of this from the oral tradition of Luke. Remember a lot of these stories, a lot of these parables were, to were told over and over again uh, verbally before they were written down. They weren't written down as soon as Jesus said them uh, in most cases. Probably in some cases they were, but you know, Matthew, some people say Matthew was written between 65 and 75 uh, AD and others say it was closer to probably 90. Depending on what you're trying to get to, it kind of depends on where you can find that source. <laughs> Uh, from the context of this parable, we could understand that the called as those who are invited to the feast, 
and the chosen are those who accepted the invitation. And that's where I would like to stick with that. Now you can look at it from a different perspective. We'll get a little bit into that here in a minute. Uh, but the other side of this is, remember, the, the ones who are called at this point, early on in this, this wedding parable, are the Jews. Because Jesus came for the Jews. He came because the Jews were supposed to bring the word of God to the people of the world. They were the chosen, set-apart people. Uh, so Jesus is helping them move forward with that. They again fail, as we know, at the crucifixion. And, and the, the Gentiles are then given that charge at that point. It doesn't remove any responsibility from the Jewish people of believing in God, but it, it, it allows the Gentiles now to be part of this. So, whole different class on that one. Uh, one way to look at this parable is the offering of people to believe in the gospel and the blessings to all who heed the gospel. All will receive the call of the gospel in some form, but not all will respond to the gospel. The ones who do, who, who do again, are the ones who are the chosen ones. So we're going to go verse by verse on this. Let's go. Actually, the, the first 13 of these verses we'll go through pretty quickly just because our main focus is verse 14, but it's good to kind of provide, like I said, some context into this. Uh, verse 1 here is a confirmation that Jesus is again speaking in a parable as he talks to this group of people. He likes to make that point here. Verse 2, the analogy is with the action or situation rather than primarily with the people, the action or the situation in which they exist. For example, the king is not like Jesus or God in particular, particularly to his vengeful acts that you'll see uh, later on because God doesn't do that. Um, wedding banquets uh, also were a huge social obligation in this time period, uh, much more than just a banquet. Uh, so if you were invited to a wedding banquet, especially by a king, the answer was to be yes, and when is the banquet, so I'll be there. So this is a big deal that I was rejected by all those who were invited. It's a big deal that this happened in this way. Uh, if you were to be invited to a wedding banquet, the answer was to be yes, uh, like I said. And so they dishonored the king if they said no. They dishonored the king if they said yes, but then said no on the second invitation. We'll get more into that here. Again, this is being an honor, honor and shame culture in which they lived in. This was quite a slight to the king, what we refer to as a major faux pas. Uh, it's as if they were shaming the king by not going. So verse 3, he sends out a service to the Jewish people, all those who have been invited or the chosen people. That's what we're referring to here again is the Jewish people. <clears throat> da, 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 da. Yeah, all those who had been, again, depends on your translations, all those who had been invited. Uh, verse 4 and 5, this is very similar to what we see wisdom's call. So wisdom is a female caricature in uh, the book of Proverbs, and I'm referring now here to Proverbs 9, 2 through 5. So wisdom call upon the people uh, to come. Comparing this to Proverbs 9, that the servant later on beckoning the people are pointing to Jesus and John the Baptist, beckoning the Jewish people to come to God's table. So beckoning, the wisdom beckoned in Proverbs 9, the king is beckoning here uh, multiple invitations are offered to the people, but they're all ignored. The people do not recognize who is calling them. Of course, the person who is calling them, the idea here being the bridegroom, Jesus. Verse 6, the servants are treated poorly, as we know from the history of the prophets, and eventually what we'll know about Jesus, or what they knew, they will eventually know about Jesus. We know it now that those who come and bring the word of God will be treated poorly. Those who are prophets will be treated poorly. 
John the Baptist was treated poorly. He was actually beheaded. Uh, so they could really start putting these ideas together of what was happening to the servants there in verse 6, where they seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Uh, some would say this is a painful... I'm sorry, verse 7. Let me give you let you know where I'm going. Uh, some would say what he sees here, what we're saying here is the, the burning of the city is a painful memory of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, uh, which would have made sense if it was written, if this book was written about A.D. 90. Uh, other sages predicted the demise of the temple by saying this. Um, so it could go either way, in my opinion. Uh, again, it depends on when you think the book was written. If the book was written um, <clears throat> in 65, A.D. 65, uh, very likely uh, talking about the demise of the, the temple. If it was written in 90 uh, or 85 to 90, it was most likely talking about what had already happened in A.D. 70. So it, just to kind of give you a, a little context here, it was a stock motif, motif uh, of this for Jewish parables for a king to sack a city uh, when a, a city refused his audience. Uh, is a way to save face. Unfortunately, you see that today when you have uh, uh, authoritarian-type governments do the very same thing. You offended me. I am shamed. I am now going to destroy you and your country or your city. It's just within the nature of people like that, I guess. Uh, verses 8 through 9 says the chosen ones would not come. The servants are to go out and grab people as they pass by. So both the righteous and unrighteous people were invited. Some would say this could be alluding to the Gentiles, but more likely uh, that Jesus would invite the righteous and unrighteous into the kingdom of God, also known as the dominion. Uh, if you go back to chapter 21, verse 31. So we have a motley crew of guests from all over the Jewish society and possibly some Gentiles thrown into the mix. Uh, there through verses 8 through 10. Uh, verse 11 through 13, there are requirements for entering the banquet. The invitation was open, but there were still requirements. No wedding garment, no food, and expulsion into the darkness. Uh, as we look in here specifically at 12 and 13, uh, similar to what we saw in chapter 8, verse 12, regarding the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, if we were to look at this from a Jewish uh, perspective of the time that while the originally, of that time, that while the, the originally included guests did not come, and, and, and the group not originally included do come, they must be ready for the event. Uh, the idea being that if a king, if you knew a king was about to throw a wedding banquet, and you had already that first invite of knowing an RSVP type date, you'd be ready for that. You'd be ready for that event. Uh, many times the kings would provide or uh, the, the, yeah, let's just say the kings will provide the garments and you could put that garment on. But it seems here like our, our friend decides not to put that garment on. He's not ready to enter into the kingdom of God. He's not ready to enter into uh, the, this banquet, this, this wedding feast. And so that's why he was, he, he was not denied by the king. He denied the king. That's where we're coming from here when we look at this. Verse 14, uh, we end with a, uh, the, the word is poloi, depending on your translation, it could be many or all here in verse 14. Uh, the, the Jewish form of this word is means all uh, here in this parable. All are called, not many. We, we can let this, uh, we can't let this think this has something to do with the modern construct of predestination and, and, and predetermination. Uh, as the exclusion has to do with the person's own failure uh, to bring and wear a wedding garment. 
not the king's failure to give him one, not the king's failure to offer him one, and yet he refused it. Those excluded by refusing to come are then judged. And that's what happens here. He gets tossed out. Uh, he gets tossed out to where there's weeping and gnashing teeth, to the outer darkness. Uh, the, the wedding garment here, in my opinion, is not about a resurrected body, but about a moral and spiritual and theological uh, prerequisites to entering the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the elect or the chosen, as we see from verse uh, chapter 24, 22 to 31, are the ones who decide to follow Jesus. We can see that the life to come needs to be entered in the proper spiritual condition. And just because one is among the elect people of God, what we're referring to here is the Jewish people, does not guarantee a place in the kingdom of heaven. Election here is corporate, not based on individuals. And that's something that I think a lot of times in our world, we like to think it's all about the individual. What Jesus is talking about here is the Jewish people were the elect, but they decided not to be the chosen. And so the Gentiles are called in. Gentiles. So this is of the elect. The elect people at that time were the Jewish people. They said, nay. Nay, they said. So Jesus had to kick a lot of them out. In the history of the Protestant rebellion against the Roman Catholic Church, there would be, a, of course, a, a distinguished difference between the common call, which is uh, addressed to all, <laughs> and the effectual call is the call of those who actually respond. So you have the, the common call and the effectual call. Uh, the only difference between the two, the effectual call and the common call, is that everyone gets the same call, but only a few respond the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, states that is, is this related to effectual calling. The effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us uh, of <laughs> us of our sin, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and rewarding, renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. If you're not a huge fan of catechisms, then you may want to hear what Paul had to say in Romans 2.13. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. <clears throat> so people since then have been trying to figure out who the privileged minority would be. Well, let me take a step back. The, there, there was a, the Gnostic philosophers of that time uh, would, would believe uh, that there were a very small few who would be the chosen would finally be chosen. Uh, that that, that the, the single small minority uh, were included in this elite number of the chosen. The, the Gnostics thought it was them uh, who, who, that, who, oops, who that would be. Uh, Jesus fought this tendency uh, as in Luke 12 and Luke 13, uh, 23, when his disciples were trying to figure out who the small privileged minority might be. Who might sit next to him? Who might be the ones allowed in the kingdom? They were thinking that it would maybe just be us 12 right? Hanging out together with Jesus forever. Uh, but no, it was, Jesus is always trying to say, it is everyone who chooses to be with him. Since then, ever since then, to this day, people continue to figure out who are the in, who's in and who's out. Who's that privileged minority who gets to be at the throne of Christ and who are the everyone else? Uh, the, the haves and the have-nots. And that's never what Jesus was saying. Uh, there's always been a desire to have a number that is small and to select to keep the bad people out. Never thinking that we could be those bad people. 
Uh, again, that was never Jesus' intention. As a prophet, he was given the reality, he was providing the reality of the situation that he was in, as well as pointing forward to the reality of generations since of face and continue to face. This may be one explanation of why we have so many churches and denominations uh, leading to a lot of schisms, distractions, and divisions because we're always trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And that's not was if you go back to what Jesus taught, if you go back to what Paul was fighting as he wrote his epistles, it's not about who's in and out. It's about who decides to follow Christ and who makes that decision. When we believe that is only a small minority based on our, our incom- incapacity, ignorance, uh, per- per- perversity, and our propensity to err, we will, we will be, we, it would be only a few. But because of the abounding grace of God, it could be many because we can decide to follow Jesus. We decide to follow him. So with divine grace is involved in the situation, things change dramatically. The good and the bad starts to gray up a little bit because we all realize we all have a little bit of bad in us. And I'll have a little bit of good in us as well. And for our Calvinist friends, I want to throw in Calvin's view uh, of this based on the letter of Paul to Rome. Some people call that Romans. Uh, But Calvin wrote, If Adam's fall had the effect of producing the ruin of many, the grace of God is much more efficacious in benefiting many, since admittedly Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. And let's just keep that in mind that God is powerful enough to save, and we have that choice to follow him. We have that choice not to follow him. And there we go. We did it. Holy cow, that was 45 minutes long. And that was a whole lot of fun. So like I said, next time we have wrapped up Matthew. And next time we will be do, starting in Luke. We'll do an overview of Luke. <coughs> and then start hitting some of the hard sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. I hope everyone has a good rest of their week. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.